This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on things that are happening in the world and how they can impact your health and the health of your family. Welcome back. Today's show may stink a little bit, but that's only because we'll be talking about turning sewage sludge into fertilizer to grow our food. This kind of recycling may be a great way for municipalities to deal with their waste problem, but now we're discovering that the sludge itself contains toxic chemicals which then make their way into our food system and from there into our bodies in a kind of vicious cycle of toxic contamination. That stinky story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, I'm sure lots more than what we're going to share. Okay, well, what, what are the headlines? What's the, the headlines. most important so, stuff? You know, I've picked out three articles that I think are really good ones. Okay. Um, the first one is written by Tom Perkins, who I really like. He writes for The Guardian, um, where great. it was published. Yeah. And the title is Recycled and Reused Food Contact Plastics Are Vectors for Toxins. Recycled and reused food contact plastics are vectors for spreading chemicals of concern because they accumulate and release hundreds of dangerous toxins like styrene, benzene, bisphenol, heavy metals, formaldehyde, and phthalates, new research has found. Are we talking about plastic containers that are being recycled? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, and we're talking about virgin plastic containers as well. Okay. The study assessed hundreds of scientific publications on plastic and recycled plastic to provide a first-of-its-kind systematic review of food contact chemicals in food packaging, utensils, plates, and other items and what is known about how the substances contaminate food. Hazardous chemicals can accumulate in recycled material and then migrate into foodstuffs, leading to chronic human exposure, the study's authors wrote, noting that bottles made from polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, plastic as the common example. The study comes amid a debate over how to reduce the amount of plastic waste filling up the globe. Mm -hmm. The petrochemical industry, some governments, and many environmental groups have pushed for improvements to the recyclability of plastic. Though some types of the material can be recycled, most cannot. And the study highlights how improving recyclability of the material comes with risks. It identified 853 chemicals used in pet recycling plastic, and many of those have been discovered during the last two years. Moreover, the chemistries of plastics can be something of a black box. In the U.S., there's very little regulation about what goes in the material, and the EU only requires light testing to determine which chemicals are in plastic. The study characterizes plastics as, quote, very complex materials containing hundreds of different synthetic compounds, which are more often than not poorly characterized for their hazard properties, end quote. Some chemicals found in recycled plastic cannot be identified, the analysis notes, adding to the risk of repeatedly recycling and accumulation. The review also highlighted widespread illicit recycling in which industry uses non-food grade plastic made with flame retardants and other toxic compounds in recycled food packaging. Despite strict regulations on which types of plastic can be used for food contact, studies identified recycled electronics in the U.S., South Korea, and European markets. This is a mess. This yeah. is really yeah. a mess. This whole idea of recycling 
you know, is... is uh, I'm, I'm about to say, like, really something that's totally outside the box here, and that is stop recycling plastic, yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. There are clear indications of brominated flame retardant that come from your old TV, your computer, and your keyboard, and that's certainly not legal. The review identified similar problems with reusable plastic items for food contact, such as kitchen utensils, water bottles, tableware, baby bottles, water dispensers, tubing of milking machines, and more. Food from plastics first used or detergents used to clean the material can be absorbed and cause chemical changes and contamination in reused material, as can heating it or otherwise using it in a way that is not designed to be. Consumers can protect themselves by avoiding plastic as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Bringing non-plastic carryout packages to restaurants and moving food products from plastic packaging to containers made of safer materials. But ultimately, the most effective remedy is the elimination of plastic and the societal use of safer materials. You know, everybody should find a way at one point during every day to complain to somebody about the amount of plastic. In other words, if you're in a store, you're in a restaurant, wherever you are, you know, at work where they've got plastic bottles, people need to start saying something about the amount of plastic and saying, you know what, we can't do this anymore. Right. Well, you know what? That is using your pocketbook. Yeah. Right? That is I mean, using your pocketbook. And, and that's what industry listens to and literally nothing else. Yeah. All right. Well, that's disturbing. Okay. Yeah. What else you got? Okay. So U.S. Supreme Court got busy oh, and boy. it shrinks the clean water protections yeah. in ruling siding with an Idaho couple. This was also published in The Guardian, written by Oliver Millman. The scope of a landmark law to protect America's waterways has been shrunk by the U.S. Supreme Court, which has sided with an Idaho couple who have waged a long-running legal battle to build their house on wetlands near one of the state's largest lakes. In the recent ruling, the conservative-dominated court decided that the federal government was wrong to use the Clean Water Act, a key 50-year-old piece of legislation to prevent pollution seeping into rivers, streams, and lakes to prevent the couple building over the wetland beside Priest Lake in Idaho. The justice's decision, in effect, overhauls the definition of whether wetlands are considered navigable waters under the act and are therefore federally protected. President Joe Biden said in a statement that the ruling upends the legal framework used for decades to combat water pollution and that his administration will, quote, use every legal authority we have to protect our nation's water, end quote. Good. It puts our nation's wetlands and the rivers, streams, lakes and ponds connected to them at risk of pollution and destruction, jeopardizing the sources of clean water that millions of American families, farmers and businesses rely on. Good. I mean, they're going to have to jump do what on they it can. Immediately. You have to jump this on this one. This is ridiculous. This is, you know, people think of wetlands as inconsequential Marshy, things that we can yeah, smelly just areas, get, but they're not. Nature they're put critical. them there for a reason. They're critical. They're critical. Well, it talks about it. Earth Justice, an environmental group that has opposed the case reaching the Supreme Court, has said that half of all the wetlands in the contiguous U.S. ecosystems prized as habitat for fish, 
waterfowl, and other wildlife, as well as being critical natural purifiers of water, will now lose their protections under the Clean Water oh, Act. Man. Can you imagine? The judgment is the latest blow to environmental regulations dealt by the Supreme Court, which last year curtailed the government's ability to limit greenhouse gas pollution from power plants. Environmental groups have accused the court, along with Republican-led state and industry interests, of threatening bedrock protections to nature in the U.S. This criticism was echoed by Elena Kagan, one of the more liberal Supreme Court justices who wrote in a dissent to the decision that the court's majority has appointed itself, quote, as the national decision maker on environmental policy, end quote. Conservation groups also expressed dismay at the ruling. The National Wildlife Federation stated, quote, the court's ruling removes these vital protections from important streams and wetlands in every state. We call on both Congress and state governments to step in, yeah. plug the gap, and protect our threatened waters and the people that depend on them. Yeah, they're going to have to rewrite the law. That's the, that's the solution here. Okay. Because, because we can't allow half of the wetlands in the United States to be now built on because some people sitting in Washington who decided that uh, it's government overreach. Right. This is the consequence of, uh, of presidential elections. You're seeing it the legacy of Mr. Trump in the Supreme Court. It's not just Roe v. Wade. Mm -mm. Um, Lots of other things that yeah, are, that are not after quite, as, quite as volatile, but mm. are equally as damaging. Congress better get busy. Yeah. All right. Okay, so I have one more, and it's, it's important to me because I'm doing a project on pollinators this weekend. This was written by Evagelos Valianatos, and it was published in Counterpunch, and the title is Honey Bees and America in Trouble. In 2019, the cinematographer Peter Nelson made a documentary of the fate and plight of honeybees. The film starts with numerous semi-trucks carrying hundreds of hives for the pollination of almonds in California or fruits and vegetables and nuts in California and elsewhere in the country. But behind the lights and sounds and dusts of trucks loaded with about 400 to 450 hives speeding in highways or unloading them on farmers' lands, there is an extremely important story. And the story is tragic. The tragedy comes on stage in the almond fields of California. Almond trees demand huge amounts of water, which California does not have. Two hives are necessary to pollinate a one-acre almond grove. Thus, about two million hives must be under the almond trees to pollinate one million acres of almond trees in California. The almond pollination in California is the biggest pollination event in the U.S. bee history. It takes almost the entire national bee supply. That's an amazing That's a lot fact. of bees. Yeah. Honeybees are essential for pollination for several reasons. Native pollinators are on the verge of extinction. Pesticides of conventional farming have been wiping them out. The documentary film is more diplomatic by saying the native pollinators are in deep trouble because they can't move away from agriculture. In certain places, their populations have plummeted. Honeybees are no less threatened by the dope drugs of the farmers, pesticides. The pesticides come under the chemical names of organophosphates and carbamates, both siblings to World War I chemical warfare agents. Eventually, those neurotoxins were phased out, only to be replaced by equally deleterious neurotoxins known as neonicotinoids. Large farmers embraced these lethal weapons, and needless to say, neonicotinoids remain the killers of choice for honeybees. Mm. 
Neonicotinoids basically work by breaking down the immune system, causing the insects to lose their memory and making them sick. EPA in the Biden administration may be rethinking, or most likely playing politics, in regulating a festering and dangerous ecological and public health reality in America. What is at stake includes the survival of the priceless honeybees, healthy farming in the form of organic farming, and hundreds of endangered and threatened species. Honeybees have been close to humans forever. The ancient Greeks even had a god to protect them, along with cheesemaking, shepherding, and olive oil making. Honey and pollination have always been precious gifts of nature. Aristotle wrote about honeybees in his History of Animals. Bees are important for all kinds of reasons. They're important because we're not capable of making all kinds of things grow by ourselves. It's not some kind of magic. It's a deep biological process of which bees are a part. But bees are also important to us because they're a very good kind of sentinel signal for the trouble that we're in. There they are every day out in the world foraging through every corner of the landscape. Populations of honeybees are dying at levels that are unprecedented and very concerning. So we have been seeing between 33% and close to half of the colonies in the U.S. dying every single year, which is disturbing. We can learn a good deal from bees about the health of the landscapes that we inhabit. And sort of secondarily, we can learn a good deal about the folly of setting up our agriculture in quite the way that we have. It's the thing that we've built up over 10,000 years of agriculture, and now in a few hundred years of industrialization, we've managed to get rid of most of it. And just within the past 20 or 30 years, we've decimated the bee population. The wild bee population. The wild bee population. Yeah. All right. Sobering. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Sometimes it feels like our Green Street News show is becoming the PFAS show. Every week, it seems, there's another article about how these ubiquitous chemicals are impacting our world and our health. Part of the reason for this is the scale of pollution that's being caused by this family of forever chemicals. Part of it is the fact they're so persistent in the world, and we may never be able to get rid of them. And part of it is the serious and devastating impact they are having on our health. Underlying all of these factors, of course, is the sneaky way these chemicals are making their way into our world. No matter how careful you are about what you eat and how you choose to live your life, chances are good you already have PFAS chemicals in your body. PFAS chemicals are in our food, in the water we drink, in the air we breathe, even in the rain everywhere in the world. And yet, the pursuit of money and corporate greed being what they are, there are about a dozen companies that continue to make these chemicals despite their unparalleled and escalating environmental cost. According to the Swedish nonprofit organization Chemsec, the world's top PFAS producers include Chemours, Dakin, 3M, Merck, Bayer, BASF, and Honeywell. Our show today is about how a lot of the PFAS in the world ends up in our sewers and what happens after that. It's a story about sewage sludge and the rather pathetic efforts of government officials to do something about an environmental problem which is clearly beyond their capacity to deal with it. Our guest today is Tracy Frisch, a freelance journalist from upstate New York who earned her master's at Cornell and was formerly the founding executive director of the New York Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and the Regional Farm and Food Project. 
We started our conversation talking about the use of sewage sludge as fertilizer. A few years ago, the state of Maine banned the use of fertilizer made from sewage sludge or biosolids, as they call this stuff. So, it was startling to hear New York Governor Kathy Hochul propose to drastically increase the amount of sewage sludge fertilizer she wants used on the beautiful agricultural fields across this largely agricultural state. The Hochul administration's new plan to recycle 85% of the state's entire solid waste stream by 2050 relies on spreading a lot more municipal sewage sludge on fields as fertilizer. Here's Tracy Frisch. It's costly for wastewater treatment plants to dispose of sewage sludge. There are several disposal methods that are in common use. Many cities, uh, including some of the smaller ones, used to have or still have sewage sludge incinerators where they burn the stuff, usually at the wastewater treatment plant. And these are totally unknown to the public. And so PFAS does, isn't destroyed at incineration temperature, so it's going up in, in the air and coming down on the ground. Uh, the other disposal method is uh, landfills. And sewage sludge, because it's organic, like food waste or yard waste, releases methane, but it also costs a lot. You know, landfill tipping fees can be high, and there's trucking involved, and this stuff is often not dewatered fully, so it's wet, heavy. But the cheap way is to compost it or otherwise process it in a way that doesn't remove toxics, but it's um, promoted as a nutrient-rich fertilizer. And sometimes communities give it away. Sometimes they sell it. So how is PFAS getting into the sewage sludge in the first place and at levels that are quite high? We know the water itself may have PFAS, but the kind of PFAS they're finding in sewage sludge is different. I set out to find this out several years ago, and, you know, it took a little while, but I like to share what I found out. So first, there's thousands of consumer and commercial products that contain PFAS. And Sometimes the PFAS is in these products, and this includes cosmetics. It, mascara and lipstick often have PFAS, so they resist wetness and they stay longer on your face. Um, PFAS is in some floor wax, ski wax, car wax. It is in some cleaning materials. It's in some apparel and some footwear. And if it's called stain resistant, uh, it's probably in it. So when you wash those things, whether you scrub them or you, you're able to put them in a washing machine, that will get, you know, you dump your water down the drain. And that's another way to get PFAS. There's recently been a study actually published in March by University of Florida scientists. They determined that the most prevalent PFAS, actually it's a precursor of PFAS, in, in sewage sludge is from toilet paper. And a previous study had determined, it was just several years ago, I believe, that toilet paper contributes the greatest amount of solid material in sewage sludge. And so they got toilet paper from four continents and they did really extensive comprehensive testing of those 
And then they tested sewage sludge at eight wastewater treatment plants in Florida. And the prevalent PFAS was not PFOA or PFOS, the ones that everyone talks about. It was another another one that's less well known, but is persistent and and associated with human health problems. And and where does why is there PFAS in toilet paper? Well, no one is putting PFAS in toilet paper to make it water repellent or stain resistant. Okay, Tracy Frisch is probably right about that. Toilet paper that is stain and water resistant would probably not be a big seller. So what is it then? What possible reason could account for all that PFAS in toilet paper? Tracy consulted with one of her friends, an expert in the field. He said that he was called to consult with a Scandinavian paper mill because they didn't know where the PFAS was coming from. It was in the lubricant that was used in the pulping machinery. And that lubricant, they were putting like a couple of pounds in every two or three days. We're talking about parts per trillion it being the drinking water standard. One part per trillion is something like one drop in several Olympic-sized swimming pools. So you put several pounds, you're going to have PFAS in the effluent, you're going to have PFAS in the paper, and you're going to have PFAS in the paper sludge. Okay, so that's one mystery solved. Toilet paper manufacturers are using the PFAS to lubricate the equipment so it runs smoother and doesn't get gummed up. PFAS is like magic for manufacturers, especially anyone that's making stuff that has to go through some kind of extruder process. Even if it's not actually being added to the product being made, it can still end up there as part of the manufacturing process. There's two reasons that PFAS is in our consumer products. It's used as a manufacturing aid, and that's why it's in paper products. And it's also intentionally added for stain resistance or water repellency or other things like that. And all the legislation that I'm aware of has called for bans or phase outs for intentionally added PFAS. Until we look at manufacturing aids, we are not going to get rid of PFAS. It has all these properties that manufacturers like, and they don't necessarily even know that they're using it. So Tracy has talked about two ways the PFAS can end up in our world. The first is when PFAS are added directly to products to make them work better, like waterproof mascara or car wax. The second is when PFAS is in the manufacturing process, not intentionally in the product itself. But there are two more sources of PFAS in sewage sludge. Number three is coming from industry. Some industry has wastewater discharge permits and doesn't go through a wastewater treatment plant, a sewer plant, but some, you know, we don't have that much and they're able to pass pass it on to through the sewer pipes. And four is really the very egregious thing. Landfills are required to collect their leachate so that it doesn't get in. Presumably it will keep it out of groundwater and rivers. So they collect the leachate, and there are tens of thousands of gallons a day. And this goes for for closed landfills, too. The leachate is typically collected. And where does it go? Without pretreatment, in most cases, to a sewer treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant. And do they have the equipment or the methods to detoxify this landfill leachate, which has every chemical that would leach out of consumer products and household hazardous waste and all kinds of things? No. Some of it goes in the sewage sludge and some of it goes into our rivers, bays, and lakes. 
It's becoming clear that recycling is not always a good idea, especially when the item being recycled has toxic chemicals in it. We're finding this out with plastic recycling, where the chemicals used to make plastic can't be separated out once the plastic is made. So the idea of recycling plastic is turning out to be a giant myth. And the same is true of sewage sludge. There's a misunderstanding, and that's that recycling is always the way to go. Recycling toxics will just spread toxics throughout our environment. It causes a vicious cycle. And this is one of the most egregious ideas because PFAS is so persistent. And since all sewage sludge that has been tested, people have have challenged me on this, but no one has been able to disprove this. All sewage sludge that has been tested has been found to be contaminated with PFAS, usually in the parts per billion, which is a thousand times higher than the drinking water standard and PFAS are mobile and get into our drinking water. So brilliant idea. There's extensive data from Maine because this practice was endorsed by the state and and farmers as a civic duty spread sewage sludge fertilizer in the 80s and probably beyond. And the state banned the practice last year uh, in both chambers and was signed by the governor. And the state had committed to test a thousand sites. And now that's up to, I think, 1500. They're testing soil, they're testing groundwater, And they're finding in some cases extremely high levels, and they're finding that there were farmers testifying. It was never spread on their land, but their neighbor had spread it and it was in their irrigation well. Or they bought feed from a farm that was contaminated unknowingly, and they contaminated their their land. So what can be done about the PFAS in sewage sludge problem? Well, it seems that step one would be to stop turning it into fertilizer and spreading it on our farmland where it will keep polluting our food forever. If you live in New York, a quick call to the governor's office would help. Just say, please don't contaminate our farmland forever. The other would be to stop producing these chemicals in the first place and use our amazing problem-solving skills and entrepreneurial acumen to develop better ways to manufacture things that don't require these toxic chemicals. I mean, if you don't look, you don't find, and you can just pretend there's no problem. And since we're not tasting, you know, parts per billion in our food, I don't know what PFAS tastes like or tastes like anything. We just are accumulating it in our bodies. So I think it is an incredibly stupid idea. And um, it it can be done kind of under the radar at times. Although sometimes people find out because some of the sewage sludge fertilizer stinks and sometimes farmers let it sit for a while before they spread it and people have a fit. So we are we are destroying ourselves and we congratulate ourselves that we passed a law in New York that PFAS is not allowed in food packaging, but that law is not being enforced in any kind of meaningful way and it doesn't address the lower levels that are still harmful. We cannot detoxify PFAS and we cannot, we excrete it extremely slowly. So the half-life of different PFAS chemicals in humans is in years. But uh, women, when they are pregnant, the PFAS goes from placenta to fetus and nursing mothers 
transfer PFAS. So the body burden in a in an infant can be quite high if the mother has high PFAS. And it is it's tragic and it's it's a crime against humanity. Tracy Frisch, freelance journalist and formerly founding director of the New York Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and the Regional Farm and Food Project. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our friend and colleague, Tracy Frisch, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.